Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. My message today in this series we've been doing called Water and Spirit is that the water walker will take you to the other side. The water walker will take you to the other side. John MacArthur, the pastor in Table Talk magazine, shares this story. He says, there was a man named Raul, not Raul, Raul, a Hindu holy man who flirted with fame in 1966. This old mystic believed he could walk on water. He was so confident in his own spiritual power that he announced he would perform the feat before a live audience. He sold tickets at $100 a piece. He's a good marketer. Mumbai's elite turned out in mass to behold the spectacle. The event was held in a large garden with a deep pool. A crowd of more than 600 had assembled. The white-bearded yogi appeared in flowing robes and stepped confidently to the edge of the pool. He paused to pray silently. A reverent hush fell on the crowd. Raoul opened his eyes, looking heavenward, and boldly stepped forward. With an awkward splash, he disappeared beneath the water. Sputtering and red-faced, the holy man struggled to pull himself up out of the water. Trembling with rage, he shook his finger at the silent, embarrassed crowd. One of you, he bellowed indignantly, is an unbeliever. You know, we're going to look today at the story of when Jesus walked on the water, and I think it's interesting, the contrast here, even when his disciples were filled with doubts and with fear, Jesus walked on water. And I want to check this story out and contrast it. And one of the things I want to say to you, because I think it's really important that you catch what I'm going to share with you today. First of all, I want to talk to you about your faith and your trust in God. But I also want you to know something, that contrary to what some teach about faith and about doubt, your little puny doubts can't keep God from doing what He wants to do in your life. I think that's really important because many times when people teach on faith, they make it sound like if you struggle with any doubt, if you battle at all with a little bit of unbelief in your life, you're blocking God's ability to work. And yet when I look in the Gospels, though I see Jesus say on a number of occasions, because of your faith I did this, I also see many, many more examples of when people were faltering in their faith, Jesus met them right where they were. Because he said it only takes a mustard seed of faith, a little tiny bit of faith to move a mountain, right? And so I want to encourage you today. There's some of you, you're you're kind of, you know, hanging in the balances a little bit in your walk with Christ. And you're you're feeling like, uh, I don't have much faith. It seems like God's let me down. It seems like things have not gone right. It seems like I'm in a dark night of the soul. It seems like there's storms all around me. And I want to share a story with you that I believe will greatly encourage you. John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21, we we read this story. And uh, you'll be able to see it here on the screen. But it says, when evening came, 
His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, you think? And notice the next part, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So there's two miracles that happened here. One miracle is that Jesus walked on water. The other miracle is that Jesus was able to translate that boat, as you'll see in a few minutes, from the middle of the lake all the way to the shore like that. And that's really a picture of our lives. Now, before I actually get into the story and breaking it down, I want to give you a little bit of background commentary. I want you to think about some of these things. And the first thing is this. Jesus isn't a cheap rip-off magician. And that's really important. Jesus versus the magicians. You know, when you read the Bible, Jesus' miracles were redemptive. And they had a purpose that resulted in helping people, demonstrating God's character, and fulfilling prophecy. Magicians put on a show. Jesus never put on shows or tried to impress people with His power. When people begged Him to do miracles, He refused because He hated the show. One of my biggest concerns about modern American Christianity, especially those of us who love the supernatural and we believe in the power of God and we believe that the Holy Spirit is still on the move, one of my issues with our time is that we love the sensationalistic. We love to break out the cameras. We love to get out our phones and show the miracles that God did. And I'm not saying that's all wrong, but I question the motives many times. We turn on Christian TV and everybody's telling their story. You go to social media, churches everywhere, pastors, evangelists, prophets are putting out there for the world to see all the great things their ministries are doing. Because it's really important today to promote what you're doing and to get a following. But I look at Jesus and I see that every time his popularity began to rise and every time people started to get ideas, we're going to make a king of him, we're going to set him up, we're going to back him, we're going to get our promotional team behind him. Jesus withdrew and he hid. He seemed to make a habit of hiding from the spotlight. And when he did seize it, he seized it purely so that lives could be redeemed and people could see what God was like. Amen? Amen. The Bible exposition commentary brings this out in this text. Bread and circuses was Rome's formula to keeping the people happy. And people today are satisfied with that kind of diet as well. Give them food and entertainment and they are happy. Did you know that Rome set aside 93 days each year for public games at the government's expense? It was cheaper to entertain the crowds than to fight them or jail them. Rome understood something. The mob is dangerous. The masses are dangerous. So the best thing you can do with the mob and the masses are to keep them fed and to keep them entertained. What do you think is happening in our culture today? where we worship entertainment as an idol and a god in America, and we're all about the food, right? I mean, today, 
you can be a serious foodie. And not only do that, we, we put the two of them together. We have entire networks that are focused on entertaining you with food. I'm just saying. If you're feeling guilty right now, it's not my intention to make you feel guilty, but if the Holy Spirit's talking to you, just obey. See, here's what had happened. Jesus had just fed 5,000 people, and the people were so impressed with him that they wanted to make him king. They they loved the idea of a king who could feed them miraculously. They saw free food for all. Look at John 6, 14 and 15. It's actually what happened just before the text that we read. Look what it says. When the people saw the sign that he had done, fed 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus had to withdraw from the crowd Go to a mountain, be by himself, and it's in that setting, in that context, that the disciples get in their boat and start to go across the lake. Right? He's by himself, they're in the boat, and something happens. And that's what we're going to get into right now. Notice these things about this encounter. First of all, the disciples were told by Jesus to go to the other side. Mark's gospel records this in Mark 6.45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So when we combine all the gospel accounts together, we see that Jesus directed them to go to the other side in the boat. He knew the storm was coming, and yet he told them to cross over without him. When Jesus tells you to go or do something, it's his intention to help you get there. Can I hear an amen? Even if it seems impossible or things happen to set you back on the way, obey him. He will show up. Jesus wanted to show his disciples something about themselves and him. He wanted them to see that they still needed to grow in their trust of him. He also wanted them to recognize his own deity, that he was God in the flesh. And he wanted to show them that he will take them to the other side. Now, now stop and think about your own life right now. Some of you are in the midst of a journey. You might be in Moses Lake at your job, in your marriage, in, in your setting in life because you felt like God opened doors. You felt like God directed you. And you did it in obedience. You did your very best to seek His will, to seek His plan, and now you're in the midst of obeying Him, and things have not turned out the way that you hoped they would. Right? Anybody ever been there? You've been out there in the lake, and it's dark, and it's, a, a storm has come, and you're rowing with all your might. You're working. You, you've even said this to people. I'm doing everything I know to do. I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm working hard, I'm really laboring to please the Lord, but I'm not getting anywhere. Anybody ever been there? And then the next thing you see is that in dark times, Jesus doesn't always come right away. And that's totally contrary to the feel-good, positive message that we often hear in the name of the gospel. You know, hey, everything's going to be great, right? Don't worry, be happy and all kinds of other psychobabble terms that we use in this culture, and we equate to the Christian gospel. You know what's really sad is that many of us have imbibed a message that is not even in the Bible, 
and we think it's Christianity, and it's not. It's a mixture of American success-oriented psychobabble and Christianity, and we've mixed them together. We've put them in a pot. We've stirred them out, and we pick out those things that we like, and we, we claim them for ourselves, and we think this is God's will for us, and it's not. Many of us don't even really know the gospel, right? We, we don't realize that what we've bought into, what we're eating and what we're drinking is not truth. We think if we're in a dark time, it's not God's will. If we're suffering, it's not God's will. If we're going through difficulty, it's not God's will. Anytime it hurts, anytime it suffers, God's not in it. It's always the devil, and that's what we do. We blame the devil. So then what do we do? We rebuke him. We cast him out. We go through all of our things. We anoint our houses with oil and our kids with oil. We do all the things we know to do. We fast and we pray, and nothing changes. Why? Because we think we're going to manipulate God and run the devil off and do all the right stuff, and we're out there rowing with all of our might, and it's getting darker. That's what it says in the text, and it was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Verse 17, think about those words, and it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. You been there? I think about my own life. I've been through some dark times. Where are you, Lord? Where are you? See, God's teaching you and I to trust Him. Many times he'll lead us into times of darkness to teach us that he alone is the light. We come up with all our false lights. We come up with all of our positive confessions. We come up with all these things that we think if we just think positively and we, we practice the law of attraction, don't even let me go there. See, we're so mixed up, we practice all kinds of pagan ideas. A lot of the things we bought into are not the gospel. They're not Christianity, but we love them. They, they talk, talk to us, and then when it gets dark and Jesus isn't showing up, we accuse God, where are you? Right? Remember Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I think it's interesting the text doesn't say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the shepherd comes immediately and gets me out of there. It says, I won't fear evil, even though everywhere. Now listen, if you're in a shadow of death, what's that mean? That means that death is so close to you and has visited you and has been near you and its, its shadow is cast upon you. doesn't mean that you can just skirt it. Right? And many of us experience death in a number of ways, not just physical death, not just the loss of a loved one, but the death of a dream, the death of a hope, right? the death of a vision that we had, a plan that we had, something that we set in motion that we believed was from God, and all of a sudden, everything's gone south. But the key is, you are with me. See, and in dark times, it can look like things are getting worse. Look at verse 18, the sea became rough. Because a strong wind was blowing. So now it's dark, Jesus hasn't come, and it's getting rougher. The word rough can be translated awakened, stirred up, or to arouse. The storm had been aroused right after a miracle. Think of that. These rough seas came right on the heels of the great miracle of feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves and fish. The disciples got to be a part of that miracle, and that's pretty heady stuff. They got to hand the food out and watch it multiply as Jesus gave it to them. They must have been on a high and thought, you know, these are fishermen. A number of them are fishermen. They must have thought crossing the sea at night would be easy to do. They'd done it many times before. They were self-confident. 
They were about to have their trust in Jesus tested. And let me just remind you, be very careful, beware of the storms that follow the victories. I've seen it in my own life. How about you? You experience a great high. You have a mountaintop experience. God comes through. He provides for you. And then almost immediately, you're like, what happened? I thought from now on it was smooth sailing. But the seas got rougher. And during those dark and stormy times, and this is the fourth point, our efforts are not enough. It says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, now, it was a little more than six miles across the lake at that point, so they were about halfway, but they couldn't do it. You know what? I'm going to, this is it again, because I know we, we, we live in the time of we can do anything. Can I just, once again, can I pop a bubble? Can I shatter an illusion? Can I just tell you, I'm sorry, this is my part of my job, I have to do this. But your efforts are not good enough not to be a Christian. They might be good enough if you're living for yourself, but if you're going to live this supernatural life of the gospel, your efforts, they might get you out there in the middle of the lake, but they're not going to bring you home. Human efforts, that's religion. Look, God, what I did for you. Look how good I've been. Look how much I'm trying. Look how holy I am. See, those are the things that we do to impress God, and they don't impress Him at all. I'm not saying He doesn't love your effort. Don't take it that way. God's not like a killjoy. But when it becomes about our effort, when it's all about, look what I'm doing for you, we've missed the point of the gospel. Human effort never gets us to God. Right? Come on, people, am I talking to anybody? What is the gospel? By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of works, right? Not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. What's Jesus, what's Paul saying to us there? He's saying, look, if you can get over to the other side in walking with me, if you can get into my presence, if you can get into my purpose for your life, if you can go where I need you to go, where I want you to go on your own effort, there's no purpose, no reason for the cross. There's no reason for a crucified Savior. There's no reason for an empty tomb. It's all meaningless. If you can get there on your own, who needs God? That's a popular message in our time. See, you can't overcome this storm on your own. Maybe you're in a storm of temptation and sin. Maybe some of you in this room are going through a time when you just feel like you're trapped, you're hooked by an addiction, you're hooked by something that you're ashamed of, you're living a secret life, you've got a second life, and this temptation and sin keeps repeating itself, and you go good for a while, and then you fall, you go good for a while, and you fall. Maybe it has to do with your sexuality, maybe it has to do with anger, maybe it has to do with your relationships, maybe it has to do with an addiction to your screen, maybe it, whatever, whatever it may be. But you keep falling, and you keep failing, and you keep letting God know, I'm giving it my best effort, I'm trying, Lord. And he's like, well, that's great, but it's not going to get you where you need to go. Maybe you're in the storm of a marital conflict, and you have proudly said, I can, we can do it on our own. We don't need any help. You know, the Scripture says, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. People that won't seek help, people that won't look for, for God to, not only God to aid them, but other people whom God uses 
They're setting themselves up for a fall. Maybe that marital conflict you're in has brought you to a point of desperation for a reason to teach you that you don't have what it takes to save your marriage and you need God to help you. Maybe you're in the storm of a job loss or financial debt. Whatever your storm is, it may be God's intention to bring you to the realization of your own weakness and inability to rescue yourself. And I'm going to tell you, we hate that. We, we don't celebrate weakness in American culture. We despise it. We hate it. We mock it. But in the gospel, weakness is where grace floods. Weakness is where God gets powerful. Weakness is where people celebrate the fame of one who delivered me when I could not deliver myself. Paul said this, I will rather boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Boast. When's the last time you said, man, let me tell you, let me tell you something going on in my life. I'm really weak. I can't beat this sin, this temptation. I'm really blowing it in my marriage. I'm doing terrible on my job. <laughs> Hallelujah. Because I know God's about to come on the scene. I know Jesus is about to walk on the water. I know he's about to get into my boat. I'm at the end of my rope. Praise the Lord. And see, some of us, I mean, you know, you just need to die quickly. You just need to surrender. You just need to quit fighting. Some of you, you pride yourself on your fight. You're just so proud of the fact that you can do this, and now you're facing a situation where you can't. Give it up. Let it go. Lay yourself down. Throw yourself at the mercy of God. If the whole thing sinks and go under, goes under, it's better that you do it with God than try to stand on your own. And then Jesus comes in unexpected and unrecognizable ways. Now, verse 19 says, They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. How many of you would be frightened? Come on, think about it. No context. Some, some of you, you, you've, you forgot how to use your imagination. Let's get childlike right now. You're in a boat in the middle of the night. It's dark. You're out on the Sea of Galilee. Probably the only light is moonlight, right? The waves are coming over your boat. The wind is blowing, and all of a sudden, there's a dude walking on the water. There is no context for that. You've never seen anything like that. You are freaking out. You're terrified. Mark's gospel says, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, yeah, these are strong fishermen. These are tough dudes. They're like, ah! <laughs> Many of us don't recognize God when he comes to us. Jesus comes disguised in ways that keep us afraid and unsure. Unsure, excuse me. The problem is not that he's mean or trying to deceive us. It's that we've only scratched the surface of who he really is. Open your eyes right now. He's closer than you think. Amen. See, sometimes the Lord is all around us. We're like, God, where's God in my life right now? I'm going through this really hard time, and I'm not mocking your pain because I've been through it too, and I hate when people mock my pain. But 
look, you're in the middle of your stuff. And you're like, God has abandoned me. And the truth is, is he's all around you. He's just come to you in a distressing disguise. He's come to you in a way that you can't see or understand. He's come to you as a ghost. And you can't imagine that he would be like that or that he would do that. And he comes as God to show us that we can trust him. And I I think that's important because, you know, most of us are willing to accept that Jesus is a great teacher. Some would call him a guru, a miracle worker, an enlightened one, or an important religious leader. I know guru's a funny word, isn't it? But yeah, some people think Jesus is just one guru and a whole line of gurus. But they're not willing to see him as God. Maybe you're on that journey. Maybe you're here right now and Jesus is a great religious leader. Jesus is a unique individual. Jesus is, there's never been anybody like him, I admit that. But God? No. But if he is God, what does that do? That changes everything. You have to believe in him then. You have to follow him. You can't make excuses any longer. You can't continue to go along and be okay with Christianity or not okay with Christianity. You can't blame the institution. You can't you know, blame the wineskin that the wine is in. You have to actually drink the wine, Jesus that is. You have to actually look at who he is and embrace him for who he is and recognize this is God in the flesh and I can't just run from him anymore. I can't just acknowledge that his teaching is profound found and he did miracles, I have to embrace him, I have to follow him. He's either one of three things, C.S. Lewis said, he's either a lunatic, he's out of his mind crazy because he said some crazy stuff, he's a liar, the greatest deceiver in history, or he is Lord, he is master, he is king, and you have to bow before that. That's it. Those are your three choices. And then I love what happens next. The presence of Jesus calms the greatest fears. And I want to end strong here. I don't just want to end in your pain. What does he do? He said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. The various gospels say that the disciples were terrified, and yet Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go do a study sometime. Take a concordance out. If you don't have a concordance, go online and and find a a Bible program like Bible Gateway and type in the words, do not be afraid or fear not. And then watch how many times that phrase comes up in the Bible. And you'll be amazed at how people back then are just like people right now, just like you and I. And we're often afraid. Afraid. And God's word to us in our time is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's also interesting, the ESV study Bible brings this out. The words, it is I, represent the Greek phrase, ego I me, which in other contexts can be translated, I am. It's as though Jesus is alluding to the I am of Exodus 3.14 when Moses meets him at the burning bush. And God identifies himself as I am. So Jesus is actually saying, I am, don't be afraid. I'm God, don't be afraid. How many of you need to hear that word in your life right now? I am says to you, don't be afraid. And when Jesus shows up, we need to welcome him gladly. It says, then they were glad to take him into the boat. You think? 
They were glad to take him into the boat. I love that. Just really simple language, one sentence. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. I often wonder how many times over the course of my own walk with the Lord that he comes to me and I'm not very welcoming. Has he come in a way that I could not recognize him and I thought he was an enemy? I don't know if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, but you know there's this story in one, I mean, in one of the stories, and I don't remember which one it is. Some of you will know this better, but this lion keeps chasing this young man on a horse, right? And he even wounds him. He wounds the horse. And later, they find out that this lion is Aslan. He wounded them. And that's how it often seems in our life. We, we can't fathom the idea that the Lord will wound us, that the Lord will wound us where we need to be wounded. Maybe your pride needs to be wounded. Maybe your self-sufficiency needs a cut, right? Am I talking to anybody? Come on now, don't get all quiet on me. Has he come with the rod of discipline or a scourge of suffering and I turned him away? I want to be like the disciples and gladly welcome him into the boat, amen, which takes me to my last point. We started with, go to the other side, and we end with, and immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. When Jesus shows up, He brings us to our destination in an accelerated way. Think about this. We labor, and we labor, and we labor, we get halfway there. We're tired, we're wore out, the waves are beating against us, the wind is against us, all the circumstances of life are against us. We welcome Jesus finally into the boat, and what happens? We're immediately where we need to be. And I've seen that in my life so many times. He'll accelerate your journey if you'll trust Him. Often we're wearied with all the hardships and the labors of our life. Life wears us out, it makes us feel like we're rowing when we're rowing the hardest, yet we're not making any progress, we're in the middle of this great and unexpected storm, we don't know what to do, and then Jesus gets into the boat, and you suddenly arrive at the destination, and you conclude only a miracle made it possible. Some of you that are here today, you've labored long, you've labored for a long time, it's been a hard road, but Jesus is about to accelerate your journey and get you to the other side. As I heard somebody say a long time ago, when you're going through hell, keep going. You will get through it, right? Some of you right now, you're in the middle of the lake. Your arms are tired, your body's wore out, and you're done. And I want you to know that Jesus is ready to get into your boat, right? He's going to get into your boat. Might not be today, might not be tomorrow. But if you'll yield to him and let him have his way, he'll get into your boat and he'll take you to the other side, right? But that's only going to happen when you you welcome him gladly and quit trying to be God, be your own God. Amen.